Good morning, everyone. Wow. This is our first time here, and we love the church already. I mean, what God has done in, is it two years or year? Golly, what a blessing. Such a sweet fellowship. You can tell a lot about a church by when you walk in. Are they friendly? Are they happy to see you? Is there a good fellowship? It's light. You got these voices up here. The pastor, his voice. Do you ever listen to that? I mean, this is like Moses on Mount Sinai. Listen to me. I love it. And then the scripture reading, wow. So we will try not to spoil that today for you. So praise God. Thank you for Marshall and Jessica, for the missions committee, for inviting us, for, gosh, entrusting us as we work in the Middle East. And Pastor Greg, what a blessing to be here. And uh, so we're going to talk this morning about what's happening in the Middle East, and we call it extreme, unwavering, high risk, because every soul matters. Every soul matters. And so we're going to look at the Thessal um, Thessalonian church this morning, and I believe in these last few years that the persecuted church has become the new face of Christianity. These are people that are legit. They're out there on the front lines. They're willing to die for Jesus. So where are we? Okay, let's do the first one, if we can, Lindsay. Okay, so this is the Doyle Bunch in 1990. We had, we had six children in eight years. Actually, Joanne had six children in eight years. And it was crazy. I mean, they were just coming right and left. And it was just, I, you know, everybody was making jokes. I, I called my dad once to talk about a game. And I said, hey, dad, guess what? And he goes, is Joanne pregnant? I said, no, no, I was going to talk about the Packers, actually. But anyway, so that means we had five teenagers at once. So we had five teenagers at once, and I think Sarah was 12 or something. So we were sitting around the dinner table, all of the kids, which is rare that teenagers are home together, right? They're out doing stuff with their friends, and we said, hey, this would be fun. Let's go around the table and just talk about how many children you want, okay? Let's do that. And so we're thinking about, you know, like, 30 or something, and um, John Mark goes, you know, I'm not sure I want children. Oh, okay, and then Lindsay, I think one, I don't know, maybe none. So we got through all six, and there was a net of two. I said, Joanne, we have so blown it. They don't even want kids, you know? We, we must be horrible parents, but they grow up. Okay, next picture. And uh, the six of them grew up, and they started getting married and having kids, and here we go, next one. So 10 grandkids, two on the way, and we are so thankful to have children and grandchildren, children that walk with the Lord. A couple of them are in ministry with them. All of them have been involved, and then grandchildren too. It's a blessing, and I wonder if that's how it is when the Father in heaven looks down and sees us reproduce spiritually, just that joy, that, that satisfaction. We know there's a party in heaven, but when people come into new life in Christ, this is not just physical children, this is spiritual children, and it's going to go on forever. And so there's a great example of that in the New Testament, the Thessalonian church, and I just love it. We read the scriptures, verses four and five, for we know our brothers and sisters loved by God that he's chosen you. What sweet words, uh, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction, and you know how we lived among you. And you know what? The gospel 
bursts onto the scene. If we can go to the next one, Lindsay. The gospel always bursts onto the scene. It doesn't come in quietly. There's an explosion with it. In 1979, the Ayatollah came in, and uh, Iran went from uh, monarchy to uh, a radical uh, fundamentalist, Sharia law, uh, Muslim country, and um, the Islamic Republic of Iran. And the Ayatollah said this. Ayatollah means uh, hearer of God, or, or he's the one that is the political, spiritual leader, tool of God. He said this publicly, we will wipe out the church. We will wipe out Christianity. There will never be two religions in Iran anymore. Everyone will be Muslim. So he said that publicly. We will squash the church. We'll wipe it out. But you know, Jesus had something to say about that, didn't he? Do you remember in Matthew 16, I will what? I will build my church. And for me... I'm putting all my chips on Jesus' side, right? I'm thinking it's going to happen, and of course it is. The Ayatollah is nothing. This is, right now in Iran, the fastest-growing church per capita in the world right now in Iran. Unbelievable. If you've looked at the Open Doors World Watch List, Iran's always in the top ten. Most dangerous country in the world for believers, but it doesn't matter. See, when we are persecuted... We thrive in it. We don't just survive, we thrive. So this is Mohammed and um, Wissam, and we had a chance to write about them. You know what, you want to come up, sweetie? Cause, yeah. And uh, we met him. Mohammed was from Syria. In the midst of the war, Mohammed uh, had three businesses. This is my wife, Joanne. Say hi. <laughs> yes. I clap for her every morning. So, yes. Yeah, so, um, Mohammed, he is uh, he's a millionaire. He has three businesses. He helps fund ISIS. Uh, his wife said that he beat her almost every day. And here's the really dark side. He had 66 other wives. Now, how can that be? 60, I thought Islam had four. Well, you can get an imam to sign off and make a contract with a woman, and you can have a temporary marriage. It could be for a year, a month, whatever. It's legalized prostitution. He had 66 wives. So if I'm Jesus in heaven and I'm thinking about who do I get my word to or who do I send a dream to, I'm probably bypassing Muhammad. I mean, let's face it, what a creep, right? But that's not our Jesus. And he started coming to him in dreams. Night after night after night, he's in Syria, the war, the country's fallen apart. So he makes his way to a church that's half bombed out, and there's a few believers in there praying, and Muhammad walks into the church, typical Muhammad fashion, he steals the Bible. You know, they would have given him one, but he steals the Bible, and he's reading it, putting it under his mattress every night. He's having these dreams about Jesus. He's reading the Bible. Mohammed comes to faith in Christ, and he goes to his wife. We say Wissam here, but in her book, what do we call her? Uh, can't remember. We have to change names for a cover. But Dina. Anyway, um, he goes to his wife and says, Jesus saved me, and I'm a new person, and I'm forgiven. And you know what Dina said? Well, how convenient is that? So you think because Jesus forgave you, I am going to forgive you? Never. I hate you. I would have killed you if I could have gotten away with the children. I will never forgive you. But then God took over. 
And over a year, she saw the difference. Of course, no more beatings, just love and compassion. And he would go off to an underground church. And after about a year, finally, one Sunday morning, he's in the underground church, and Dina walks in. She wants to meet this Jesus. She, she became a believer that day, and that was the first half of their life. Here's the second half. They're in Lebanon now, working in refugee camps. They are unbelievable as far as their, their courage, their faith to go in and lead Muslims to faith in Christ. In the refugee camps, it's the most radical people, and they go in and tell about what God did in their marriage. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yes. Can you imagine, women, your husband having 66 other women? That that's even legal, that that even happens. And so you can imagine how hard it was for Wisdom to forgive her husband. Um, but she did see the change. She saw Jesus in him. And so when we talked with her afterwards, we asked her, Wisdom, how did you forgive your husband? And this is what she said. I had to look at myself. I had to see all the ugly in my heart, all the sin, all the hate that I had. I had to deal with my own sin. And then when I dealt with my sin and realized how Jesus forgave me, then I could forgive my husband. And, and then she said a beautiful thing. She said, my husband loves me, only me. He birthed, he renewed and restored their marriage and made something beautiful. So the little girl sitting on Mohammed's lap, she's actually been born after they came to faith in Christ. And you can't tell in this photo, but have you ever seen those babies that are always smiling? That's how she is. She is always happy. She is a picture of what God has done in their marriage. And now they, are, they have a holy boldness. They are not ashamed of the gospel, and they are not afraid. They don't value their life as much as they value getting the gospel out to those who don't yet, yet know Jesus. The cool thing, this is your brother and sister in Christ. You are going to get to spend eternity with them. So that's pretty amazing. And you know what? It's a blessing to not only see forgiveness, but we get to see reconciliation, that they still have a marriage. And it's not only a marriage, they are in love. They are always holding hands, touching each other. They're like on a honeymoon, you know, and this is the Middle East. You don't do PDA there, you know? You don't, you don't, what is PDA? Yeah, public display. I started to say physical, and I thought, no, nah, it's going the wrong way. Public display of affection. You don't do that. Men on one side, women on the other, and they're just always a little touch, a kiss. God has totally redeemed them. Okay, next one, if you would, Lindsay. Thank you. So this is uh, Mahmoud, a friend of ours from the Gaza Strip. It was one time Voice of the Martyrs said the most dangerous place for believers to live in, in the world. He grew up Muslim, came to faith in Christ, and he said this, I asked God to make me a full disciple. And I said, Mahmoud, what do you mean? He goes, not a partial disciple. I want to do everything Jesus commanded me to do. And he said, the Sermon on the Mount smacked me in the face because it said, love your enemies. So who are my enemies? They were across the fence, and it was the Jews in Israel, and I hated them. So I asked God to forgive me, and I thought I would have a toleration of them. He gave him a love for the Jewish people to the point of the, the John 3.16 of Jews is, is the Shema from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Every Jew, whether they practice or not, knows the Shema. Here, it's, it means ear. Hear, O Israel, Shema. He had this tattooed on his arm. In Hebrew. In Hebrew. 
and he witnesses to Jewish people in the West Bank and in Jerusalem as he's getting passes to go in. It's unbelievable. I mean, if anybody saw that as a Muslim and they would identify him with his name, he would be dead. But he will go up and tell Jewish people, I grew up in Gaza, I was Muslim, and you know what? I hated you and wanted to kill you. But Jesus set me free. He's the Jewish Messiah, you know, and he wants to set you free too. Wow, what a powerhouse. They've never heard that message. You know what, folks? The UN can't pull that peace agreement off, right? Not going to happen. Only in Jesus. Okay, next one, if we could. So this, we were on the Temple Mount. We do trips to Israel. Love it. And we're up there, and we're talking about how radical it is on the Temple Mount. One day, the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque will be gone, and there'll be a third temple. King Jesus is going to come back. We've got a lot to look forward to. So we're up there talking about how radical it is to the people, and be careful. We're not supposed to pray up here, but we're going to anyway. And as I'm getting them all prepped up, I'm actually making people more afraid. And I looked over. Nobody's looking at me. They weren't listening. They were watching Joanne, and she's over there meeting Muslims. So go to the next one, if you would, Lindsay. Look at that. Out of the clear blue, doesn't know them. And what did you say? Mm, I don't know about you, how many Muslims you see here. I can't see you guys. I'm so short. But anyway, I don't want to ignore you. Um, I don't know about how many Muslims you see here, how many you know, women in Hijra. Oh, gosh, thank you. Isn't this sad? Short people problems. Do you know there's a verse in the Bible for short people? Lo, I am with you always, even into the end. Of anyway, okay. So now I forgot what I was saying. Um, yeah, so I don't know how many veiled women you see here, but typically we find, no matter where we go, that when a believer even sees a woman in a hijab, we tend to be afraid and back up a little bit, thinking they're dressed this way, their silent message, stay away. But that is not the truth. Muslims are looking for truth. And you can see just by this picture how approachable they were. And so I saw these two women sitting there while Tom was talking. And so when I see a woman in a hijab, my heart is to show them that I see them. They are so used to being overlooked, right. ignored. How many times have you seen one? Maybe and you pretend you don't. You kind of push your grocery cart the other way. They see that. Haven't we all been ignored before, overlooked? And it does hurt our heart, doesn't it? So imagine these women that that's all they've known their whole life is that they're invisible. And so um, they are so open to friendship. And I just walked up to these two young women. It turns out they're from Turkey. One spoke perfect English. The other did not. And look at within two minutes, maybe, there we are hugging. There is no reason to be afraid of Muslims. Remember this. As followers of Jesus, we are the only ones that have truth, right? And if we're not going to share it with Muslims, who will? So God's given us this beautiful invitation to share his love with everyone, including Muslims. You know, we got to remember, Muslims are not the problem. Islam is the problem. Muslims are trapped in lies, and we can give them the truth of Jesus. So when you see a Muslim woman, y'all, please don't be afraid. Show her you see her. Make eye contact. Try to have a conversation. And you may be the one to lead them to faith in Christ. Amen. Thank you. So... Uh, what does that have to do with you living here in Vero Beach? Well, we did a little research. Did you know in this city and in this area, there's 10 mosques, quite a few Muslims uh, around here. And uh, so what we want to encourage you this weekend at the missions conference is this. Think globally, but act locally. It's not just missionaries' jobs. That's what we're here for, all of us. Okay, next one, if you would, Lindsay. So 
This is Jamela. This is actually her, her picture, too. And Jamela was Muslim and lived in Deir Ezzor, so think northeast Syria, right by Iraq on the Euphrates River. It's a very, very important location in Syria. It's where their oil and gas center uh, is, their energy, and ISIS took it over during the war. Well, it was just bombing and continual fights with, with uh, the Syrian military, and it's just a lot of death and destruction. And one day, in between the bombing raids, there's a, a, a break, a halt in the bombing, and Jamila and a few of her friends go out, and they're just going to go to the grocery store really quick for their family and come back. And as they're walking, all dressed in black, one of the women says to Jamila, says to both of them, have you heard that um, Jesus, Esau, is coming to people in dreams in Deir Ezzor? Have you heard that? Jesus. Now, I don't know if any of you have heard that, but when I first started hearing about Muslims having dreams about Jesus, I didn't believe it until we started working there, and it's all over the place. It's all over. About one out of three Muslims that come to faith in Christ say that they had significant, high-definition, I will never forget this in my life, dreams of Jesus, where he told them that he loved them. Women will say this, I've never felt so safe with a man in my life. He talked to me like a father. So they're walking, and one of them says, Jesus is coming in dreams. And Jamila never said it. She thought it in her mind. She just thought it and thought this thought. I wish Jesus would come to me in a dream. He's a man of peace. I wish he would come to me. Well, fast forward a few months later, she had a stroke because it was the blood pressure, high blood pressure, couldn't get any medication in there. The doctor kept warning her, this is not good, but they had no medication. She has a stroke. She's paralyzed on the right side. She's in a coma in a hospital, but as she comes to, she can hear, but nothing else is working. She can't see, can't open her eyes, can't move, but she can hear the conversation in the room, and the doctor is telling her family that she's going to die. She'll be gone in two days. I'm sorry, we've done everything we can. She said she felt like she was trapped underwater trying to get out and couldn't get out. And she's there. There's nothing <laughs> that can save her. And at that moment, she said, Jesus came to her and stood at the foot of her bed and said, Jamila, I'm Jesus. I hear you've been looking for me. And he said, you're going to be okay. I'm going to heal you for my glory. But this is for your family to see too. And they were a radicalized family. And so each day he would heal one part. But, but as he left, she said, here she is, can't move anything. She said, I didn't know Christian words. I didn't know how to praise God. But she said, I just wish that I could raise my hand. And she said, all of a sudden, my hand went up. I could feel that it went up. And her mother, who had just gotten the news, fainted and fell to the floor. She heard the crumple on the floor. Mothers do that, right? And so God did it. You talk about a powerhouse for Jesus. And this doesn't always happen. It really doesn't with radical families. But one by one, each of her family came to faith in Christ. There's like 20 of them because they saw it and they know it was no other answer except Jesus. So the gospel bursts onto the scene. Did you know that more Muslims have come to faith in Christ in the last 10 to 20 years than in the last 1,400 years of Islam? So 10 to 20 years. That's right. We can clap for that, right? 
10 to 20 years, 1,400 years, it's happening all over. It's happening. They've done surveys in Iran. Less than a third, 50,000 people they surveyed, which is, you know, pretty dangerous to do that. Less than a third of them even believe in Islam. This is our time, folks. This is the great opportunity. More Muslims coming to faith in Christ today than ever before. It's like God's running a special on them. But so what happens when they do come to faith in Christ? Next one, if you would, Lindsay. Okay. Can young believers survive persecution? Look at verse 6. The Thessalonians did. And you became imitators of us in the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering. Right out of the chute, except Jesus persecuted. You accepted the message with joy in the Holy Spirit. I wouldn't put severe suffering and joy in the same verse, but Paul did. It's supernatural. The Holy Spirit did it. So, Joanne, tell us about... Yes, Vera. How many of you have ever been to Jordan? Anybody been to Jordan? Oh, yay, one. <laughs> well, pack your pretend suitcase and come with me. Let's go meet someone in Jordan. This is Farah. Farah is a Jordanian woman, um, and she was a moderate Muslim, you would say. She decided, I am choosing my own husband. I am not going to be, you know, in an arranged marriage. So she also decided, I'm going to be a career woman. So she got a job in a bank. She worked there about eight years. But the, the country has this rule. If you're a single woman, if you're not married and you have a job, the government keeps back part of every one of your paychecks. And they save it for you for when you get married. So Farah worked in this bank for lots of years. And she's, you know, moderate Muslim, doesn't really want to wear a hijab. She only does when she goes to mosque, which is on the high holy day of Ramadan. Other than that, she is a free spirit. Well, one day, Farah gets a phone call. And it's from her father. And her father says, Farah, I've got terrible news. Your mother's cancer's back. And we don't have money for her treatment. So I've arranged for you to marry a man this week because we need that money that's been saved for you so that we can use that for your mother's treatment. So within a split second, there is Farah faced with a whole new life. She's forced to marry this man. And her story is in our newest book, so there's a lot more details to it. But in a nutshell, the abuse starts the night that they get married. She's beaten mercilessly. Sometimes he beats her so much she actually passes out goes unconscious. Things like so degrading. Um, she would make a dinner for him, for instance. And this one just got me. She said, I would try to make something that he liked that his mother prepared the week before. I'd get the recipe, work really hard to make it. And he would look at it, take a bite, and he would say, stand up and slap her across the face and say, this is disgusting. Almost as disgusting as you are. Then he would take that plate of food and throw the whole thing in the trash can. That's the kind of man she was married to. She wanted to kill herself. Farah said, I became so depressed, I wanted to take my life. But the only reason she didn't, she said, is because she had two young boys. And what would happen to those children if she was gone? So Farah is spiraling downward. She said, one day, now the Syrian war has, is in the middle of that. All the refugees are flooding into her country. And she said, one day I was at the souk. And every time I turned around, whether it was looking at cucumbers or looking at a cantaloupe, there was this woman. She was a refugee. She's in tattered clothes, but her face was shining. And she said, I kept running into her every time I turned around. There she was. And she said, finally, I went up to her and said, I am a Jordanian woman. You're only a refugee. Why are you smiling and I'm not? 
And this woman went, come here, I have a secret. And so Pharaoh's looking around, a secret? What do you mean a secret? She said, I found Jesus, and he set me free. You want to learn more? And so Pharaoh began meeting with this refugee woman, who, by the way, was led to Christ by our leaders in Jordan. And Pharaoh said as soon as she heard that truth of the gospel, she knew that it was right. She knew that it was true. And so she prayed right there on the spot and gave her life to Christ. Isn't that amazing? And she said immediately that, that depression, those suicidal thoughts were gone. And I was filled with joy, just as it talks about here in Thessalonians, the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then, you know, a lot of the Muslims we meet, they have dreams of Jesus before they come to faith in Christ, but Farah had her dream afterwards. And so this is now being discipled every day, learning the word. You know, remember, they've got no biblical foundation at all, and so they really need to learn the truth of God's word. So she's learning the word, and just as you guys are having baptism next week, Farah was baptized. And the night before, she's going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, she's going to be baptized, that's when she has her dream. And in her dream, she said the room was full of people, every one of them dressed in white and glowing. She said, I knew that they were all fellow believers in Christ. Then she said she noticed at the side of the room was a staircase. And she walked up the staircase. And at the top, it's getting brighter and brighter. There's Jesus. And he looks at her. The first thing he says is, Farah, I love you. And then he put a gold crown on her head. Then he put a piece of bread in her mouth and said, you belong to me. And then she woke up. And the next day, Pharaoh celebrates the Lord's Supper. She's baptized. And she said when she went down in that water, she did not want to come up. She said, I felt like Jesus was washing my heart. And all of the sin and the hate and all that I had in me was just being washed away. She said when she came up out of the water, she did indeed feel like a new woman. And when they offered her a towel to dry off, she said, I just want to keep this water on me as long as I can. She didn't do this with her hair. She said, I just wanted it to dry. You know, here in the West, I don't think we have that same attitude. I mean, we are so reverent and so excited when we're baptized. But those of you that are going to get baptized next week, you are a new creation in Jesus. And baptism is a celebration of that. And when you have come out of the darkness... In fact, Ephesians says, we once were darkness, not in it, we were darkness, but in Christ we are the light. So next week, those of you that are getting baptized, remember that. You are a new creation in Christ. I think we have the next. So this is Pharaoh before Jesus. Doesn't that look like depression? Here she is after in the middle. Look at the hope of the Holy Spirit, the joy of the Holy Spirit. And she too is your sister in Christ. You'll get to meet her in heaven one day. Love it. Isn't that amazing what God's doing? I forgot to ask, what time are we? 11.15? That's dangerous for missionaries, but thank you. Okay, all right, next one if you would. Okay, thank you. Oh, man, they don't just survive, persecuted believers. They thrive, really. So this is the deal in the Middle East. Um, there's a harvest. And whenever there's a harvest, there's persecution. They're identical twins. They grow together wherever. Satan tries to slam the door shut. But you know what it is? Persecution of the body of Christ is a failed initiative. It hasn't worked for 2,000 years. The more you persecute us, the more we spread. 
the stronger we get, a strong church in Iran, in Syria, and places like that. And so um, before Muslims pray to receive Jesus, and I know a lot of ministries do this, they ask them two questions. Number one, okay, Muhammad, you want to receive Jesus as your savior. Before you do that, are you willing to be persecuted for him? Because it's probably going to happen. Your family will take it personally. Are you willing to be persecuted for Jesus? Yes. Okay, if you're willing to be persecuted, here's the second question. Are you willing to die for Jesus? Because it could happen. Your family could try to kill you. And so many of them answer, yes. And I think about that, those two diagnostic questions. And I pastored for years, and I thought, man, we never had those two questions in the new members class, right? <laughs> what would what, have happened in our church in Colorado? They go to the next church, right? But that's what they expect. They know that's going to happen. Okay, so this is Nori. Nori uh, was... Yeah, it's not Jamila. Sorry, I made a mistake. Nori uh, is an amazing young lady in Jordan. Uh, her father was a, a sheikh, and um, she was a nurse, 27, darling young lady, but there was a dark side at night. Things would happen, and she was demonized. And they say in the Middle East, they call them the jinns, the genies. If you've seen Aladdin, the genies, it's a, it's a demon, the, the jinn. And they would come in a, it, awful male voice come out screaming, throwing dishes at her parents, and she never told anyone her, her father is a sheikh, can't do nothing. Of course he couldn't, and so finally at work one day, she just tells the doctor, I have a problem that someone she works with on the cancer floor, he goes, what is it? And she says, they take over at night. They're demons. They're taking me over, and I can't control myself. And this Muslim doctor, Hussein, looked at her and said, I know what you need to do. I know what you need to do. Nori, you need to go see a Christian pastor. And she said, what did you say? <laughs> you need to go see a Christian pastor. She said, you mean a Muslim imam? He said, no, a Christian pastor. He said, do you know any Muslim imams or sheikhs delivering people from demons? I don't. What about your dad? Did he help you? Well, no. Go see a Christian pastor. She goes to two churches. They won't open the gate. They're afraid. Here's a covered woman. They don't know what to do with her, and they can't let her in. They think there might be some blowback from radical Muslims, and so it ends up, goes to a third church, and we work with the leaders there, and they knew exactly what was going on. They led her to faith in Christ, got rid of the demons, and this is a new woman. I'm telling you, she became a powerhouse for Jesus. She uh, told her mother, her father died in the midst of this. She told her mother, her mother exploded, started screaming, you are a disgrace. You've just, the whole family will be ashamed of you. And, and so she would go to work in the morning at the hospital at noon, go get discipled, come home after work. Mom wouldn't even touch anything in the kitchen. She'd fend for herself. Her mom would scream at her every day and she would go in her room. And so finally she got on Facebook and thought, wow, I wonder if there's other Muslims that have questions like I did. And so she started a Facebook page and called it Huda Has Hope. And she just put it out, hey, I'll answer questions, and have you ever thought about this? And I found this out in the Bible, and talk about the Quran. And within a couple of weeks, she has a couple hundred followers. And they're just asking questions over, and it's growing. Our leaders say, She's like the new hit on Facebook in the Middle East. Everybody's got a question for her. And she keeps saying, no marriage proposals, guys, you know, and all of that. And finally, one night, she's been doing this for a couple of months. 
she sees her mom's name go across the screen. Her mom got online, has heard about this new Jesus thing, found the website, and starts answering, asking questions. She doesn't know it's to her daughter in the next room. And she wanted to burst out of that room and go hug her mom and say, Mom, I'm Huda. And the Holy Spirit said, no, stick to the gospel, stick to the gospel. Almost every night, her mom would ask her questions. And finally, after a month, it came across the screen. And she says, Huda, I want so much what my daughter has, the joy, the love, but I'm so afraid. And again, she wanted to burst out of the room and go hug her. The Holy Spirit said, stick to the gospel. And that night, she led her mother to faith in Christ over Facebook, and they were in the same apartment. Does this sound like a movie? I mean, really, right? Praise God. Well, she didn't get the word from the Spirit to go back and talk to her, so she waited a couple weeks later. The underground church is going to do baptism, and that was the time. She went and told her mom, I'm going to be baptized. And her mom picked her up and hugged her and just said, I'm so sorry, forgive me, I can't, can't believe it. And I came to Jesus and she said, I know, I'm Huda. <laughs> she could not fathom it. Are you kidding? Why didn't you tell me? And it ended up her mom went to her baptism, sitting in the first row, fully covered Muslim. And when they finished, she was so proud of her daughter, she said, I'm going to be baptized next time. Well... You know, the pastor happened to overhear that. And we pastors have a homing device on comments like that. He said, what's to prevent you from being baptized now? And she did and was baptized. And what an amazing turnaround. Her and her mother both baptized and willing to risk. This lady is out there doing it, um, leading Muslims to faith in Christ on the Internet. Okay, learning from persecuted believers. This is, we won't go into, next slide if you would. This is Mustafa. He was in line to be the next sheikh of Jericho until Jesus arrived. He had a horrible something happening in his head where it was just, they didn't know if it was cancer or what, but he couldn't sleep. The pain was horrendous. He went to Jewish doctors. They couldn't figure it out. The Lord healed him. He is an unbelievable uh, man of God, leading people. To, he gave up everything. He was the next sheikh in Jericho. Okay, next one, if you would. Uh, unfortunately, in the Middle East, there's secret police. They follow you everywhere. Joanne snuck this picture out the back of our car in Syria, and the man in the brown was following our leaders in Syria and us everywhere. That's just how it is. Now, typically, the secret police in Syria are really easy to spot. I mean, they're, they're not real good at it. You know, they're, they're like wearing a long coat, uh, reading a newspaper and smoking a cigarette, you know, like, like not a hole in the newspaper, like on Get Smart, but kind of like that. You know, it's obvious. And that, but this guy following us, this is their life. Every single day, secret police everywhere. Okay, next one, if you would. Uh, this is um, someone that... Um, on our Egypt team to the left that led, let's see, how do I say this delicately? We don't expose. Um, someone in the government, to uh, very high up in the government in Egypt, two of their family mem members to faith in Christ is discipling them. One of them ended up being killed, and there was a fatwa put out on his life. We offered to get him out, and he said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm staying here. Jesus called me to Egypt, so if I live here or die here, I'm, I'm staying. 
That's what God's called me to do. Verses 9 and 10, we have a great hope. Um, let's see. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescued us from the coming wrath. We have this great hope. And we got it. We did a switcheroo slide at the last second. So do you want to start the story and I'll finish it? Sure. Roger. So we were a couple years ago over Valentine's Day in Lebanon. And what we did is we brought out our leaders out from Syria um, so that they could have a time of refreshment. And so think about this, ladies. The women that stayed in this little hostel that we were in said they hadn't gotten their whole body wet in over two years. So what they would one day wash part of their body, the next day another part. There was just no water. Some of them said, I haven't had hot food in months. I haven't had meat in two years. I mean, these people are living in the midst of a civil war. Life is really tough. So they got there, and oh my gosh, it was a time to love them. We washed their feet. We just, you know, just encouraged them. We worshiped together. And then we met Raja. And there she is in the middle, the tall one. And she has got a holy boldness for Jesus. And um, I will let you tell the story. I mean, we, to tell you the story is so crazy, you guys, that we had to check around with several of the pastors there to say, did this really, really, really happen? And it really, really did. So. Yeah, we verified it with all of that. We verify all the stories. But with pastors in Syria, do you know that? Yes. And it's not only the church has heard it, but people outside of the church. There was even a newspaper article. So her son called her one day. It's Raja. They live in Syria. They son lived in a place that was just bombed out. It's terrible. Very little food, hardly any water. He called his mom and said, we're leaving tonight. We're getting in a rubber raft and going to go across the Mediterranean, try to get to uh, Turkey. We're going to try to get there and get on the refugee road, maybe go to Germany, Sweden, something like that. We can't take it. Today, we saw children drinking out of mud puddles, and they've seen so much death. Uh, our, and he said, remember, Mom, Ali does not even speak, and he's turning three. He's, he's been so traumatized by the war, he, he can't speak. He can't. We're going tonight. She didn't feel good about it, but they left. So they leave the coast of Syria, get in a rubber raft, and they take off. It's like a little motorized thing. And, and Raja said she was up all night long praying for them, couldn't sleep a wink, just praying for them as this is going on. So yeah, go ahead. So it's her son and wife and their little son, Ali. He's three. And so they're out there, and they're out there for hours. It's the middle of the night, and they're just so thankful to get away from Syria. All of a sudden, they see these big lights coming, and they can't figure out what it is, and they realize it's the ship. And so they've got to get out of the way, and they've got this motor, and it barely works, and paddling, getting out, and they, they clear the ship. But after it goes past them, the, the wave and the wake just flips that rubber raft into the air, and they go flying and they are treading water, and they can't find Ali. He doesn't speak. They can't find him. He's gone. That's got to be it. And they're treading water, and they're screaming, and some fishermen hear them, and they're night fishing, and they come out and speed their boat out, and then within 10 minutes, they get there. And as he's pulling them in, they, they're crying, we lost Ali, we can't, we can't believe it, we, we lost Ali, we, we didn't know where to go, and they pull, pull him into the boat, and there's Ali sitting in the boat, 
And they, they said, how, how, how did that happen? He goes, well, he was the first one I saw. He was floating on the water, and I just picked him up. And they said, Ollie, we, we can't. How did this happen? You don't swim. And for the first time in his life, Ali spoke, and he said this. Jesus held me up in the water, Mommy. Jesus was there, and he smiled at me, and he held me up in the water. And from that time on, Ali spoke and never had a speech problem again. But did you notice the first word that he said? Jesus. It came out of his mouth. Jesus. He was healed instantly. He talks all the time. His grandmother says, we can't get it. We wish he would shut up a little bit. He talks all the time. Is he going to be like the next Apostle Paul of Syria? Maybe, because he's telling everyone and not backing up. And they decided if Jesus is strong enough to protect us in the Mediterranean water, he can protect us in Syria. They went back, and they're there serving Christ. So as we close today, what does all of this mean? Number one, the power of God is saving across the world. It is surging into the Muslim community. One-fifth of the globe is Muslim. And more Muslims have come to faith in Christ in the last 10 to 20 years than 1,400 years. Don't forget it. They are open. Two, something shifted in the heavenlies in the beginning of 2020. Did you feel it? Did you sense that we were living in a different world? It's as if God pulled back a bit on the restraining of evil, and things that were hidden were celebrated and boasted about in the news. Something shifted. I think God is giving the body of Christ a glimpse of what could be coming. This is our time. Uh, he's showing us how bad it can get. There are Muslims in this area. Think globally, act locally. Joanne, you want to give them a charge on that? Yes, you know, I, as Tom said, our days are getting increasingly dark, aren't they? And God is looking for men and women with a holy boldness. What is a holy boldness? Well, it's different than regular old boldness. You know, boldness, we can be kind of self-seeking. Sometimes it can be prideful or arrogant. We're not particularly drawn to that. But a holy boldness is totally different. It's cloaked in the fruit of the Spirit. This holy boldness has love and joy and kindness and all of those things with it that represent the one that we are seeking to share. So, again, God is looking for men and women with a holy boldness that are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You know, I love that verse because Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the boldness. And it goes on about, you know, about that. And so when we are actually sharing the truth of Jesus, the Holy Spirit's boldness is released over those people. And so we have no reason to fear. The Holy Spirit takes over. Our job is just to share the hope within us. So will you be men and women that will rise up in these last days with a holy boldness to share the hope that you have of eternal life? God is looking for men and women like that. Let's answer that charge. Be faithful to the very end. We want to, as Paul said, we want to finish the race strong. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, one day. And it could be coming a lot sooner than we think. So we encourage you as we stand that, that way too, let's all have, let's carry that holy boldness for Jesus. Amen. Amen. So maybe we start building more non-Christian relationships. You know, it's so easy. This is great. What a great fellowship. Amazing. But we all 
need to be out there. And so pray that God would bring uh, unbelievers into your life, uh, Muslims into your life. And then think about this. We think about the persecuted church, the Thessalonians, how strong they were. Right out of the gate, they were persecuted, but they held strong. We see people in the Middle East like that. Jews have the same problem when they come to faith in Christ. Their family ignores them in Israel. They're persecuted too. So what about us? The two questions. Are we willing to be persecuted for Jesus? What if it happened here in America? Is it coming? Persecution? You know what? It's already here. There's former Muslims that have been killed by their own family. There's court cases in four different states right now. It's coming. It's here. It could happen. Am I willing to be persecuted for Jesus? Am I willing to die for Jesus? So we're looking, the church is looking, the body of Christ is looking for people that will live extreme, unwavering, high-risk lives for Jesus. How do we do that? Here's how we do it. Four words. If you can get anything in this sermon, man, get these four words. How do we do it? Immediate, radical, costly obedience. When Jesus puts something on your heart, the Holy Spirit, go see that person, do it. Immediate, radical, costly obedience. That's what he's looking for. I'll close with this. We moved to Dallas, Texas after living in Colorado 20 years. We're at 7,500 feet. You wear shorts in the summer and a sweatshirt. I mean, it's nice. And we moved to Dallas in July. We're there, and I'm, I'm just going, oh, my gosh. No wonder they drink iced tea nonstop. It just gets you back to sea level, you know? And so I was in a meeting all day, and I was tired, and and I, oh my gosh, I'm late. I got to pick up Joanne. We have dinner. And I get in the car. And I'm going to be 30 minutes late. And I get in the car. And on the Honda, it says six miles till empty. And I went, oh my gosh, Lord, are you kidding me? And so I get on the, on the freeway, get up. And there's three gas stations. Okay, I'll do that one there. It's FINA. I stick my card in the pump. And it says, must see cashier. So at that point, I lost it. I was, can I, can we... Can I just say, I was not in the spirit, and I said, come on, Lord, can I have a break? You know, I'm doing your work. Yeah. So, look, guilt him into it, right? And so I walk in, put down the card, lady comes up, covered Muslim, and we start talking. And I said, wow, you're Muslim. We spend a lot of our life in the Middle East. We love it. We go to all the countries. Where are you from? And she said, you go to the Middle East a lot? And I said, yeah. And she goes, well, you have to guess then. I said, oh, okay, Egypt. She goes, nope, Saudi Arabia. And I said, wow, that is so cool. I've always wanted to go there. And we're talking all that. I just thought I'm going to take a chance. I said, you know, I write books, and I have a book I want to give you. It's, um, it's kind of weird. I'm sure you've never heard about it, but your people, Muslims, are having dreams about Jesus. I wrote a book, Dreams and Visions. Can I give it to you? And she said, you wrote a book about that? And I said, uh, yeah. And she goes, that's totally weird, because I've been having dreams about Jesus. I said, excuse me a minute. Forgive me, God, for that crack. I, I get it now. I know why I'm here. And I gave her the book. I'm signing the deal, and she's flipping through it. And two days later, it ends up going back to ministry headquarters. And I thought, ooh, need gas. I'm going to stop at that station. I'm going to use that same pump. Stuck the card in. Worked perfectly. See, I don't think it was a card malfunction. It was an order from God. It didn't say, please see cashier. It said, must see cashier. So, okay. So I go in, and there she is. I did the card, went in, and she's reading Dreams and Visions. And she goes, this book is like my life. I said, your life? 
how long has you been having dreams about Jesus? And she said, over 30 years. I said, did you not talk to a Christian? Did you not go to a church? He goes, plenty of them. But nobody, I don't know, they seem nervous. Could they be scared because I'm a Muslim? And I said, no, that could never happen. Uh, <laughs> yes, it, that could be, you know. And um, she said, but you know, Jesus was like a father to me. And he would just put his arm around me. And I just said, Jesus, show me what it means, the way. And I just knew this. He loved me so much. One of these days, he was coming for me. And I said, you know what, Rawia? I, th I think it's today. And here we were in the Fina gas station, shared the gospel, and we held hands and she prayed to receive Jesus. And she had been looking for him for 30 years. How many Rawias are around us? How many are around the world? We have the message. We have the charge. Let's be willing to risk. Jesus wants to use all of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing uh, in this church. What a breath of fresh air for us this morning to be here at uh, Vero Bible Fellowship and just sweet friends already. And God, we praise the body of Christ that we would be faithful, that you would use us for your glory. Uh, Father, we pray that Muslims in this area would know that Jesus loves them and he's there for them and they need him as savior and they need to repent of their sins and get out of dead religion and works that doesn't work, but come into a living relationship with God. Use this church, use us individually. Jesus, thank you that we are able to live, I think, in the second most important generation ever outside of the first century because you're moving so powerfully. We want to be faithful. Use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Thank you. Wow. That's exactly why we have a missions weekend, so that we can be shaken in our complacency. Amen? I hope the Lord has just really moved your heart. The danger of a, of a new church is that, uh, especially in the situation that we were founded in, is that it's easy for us to place our emphasis on caring for one another in the church. And that's a wonderful thing. A, a, a true church of the New Testament should be a place where the body is cared for and loved. But, but what we leave behind is reaching out and seeing others as more important than ourselves. And so today was a wonderful reminder. Thank you both. What a blessing today to have you. And uh, I'm excited for tonight to hear Kurt and what God's put in his heart at the dinner and then again tomorrow night. It's been a wonderful day already. But let's leave knowing that the Lord would not have sent them to us unless he's trying to communicate something that we need to hear. Take it personal. Don't just look around, boy, they needed to hear that. It's you that God wants. It's you that God will use. Amen? God bless you, church. Thanks for being here. We've got elders. If you need prayer, we've got prayer partners. They'll come up towards the front. As you're leaving today, if you just want to come up, be prayed for over any matter or pray, pray with someone about another matter, that's fine, okay? God bless you, church. Thanks for being here.